0: You gotta work hard to be comfortable. Yeah, a lot of people kid themselves, you know. (laughs) They 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 know when they were born, they know where they're going, they know whether they're gonna go to heaven, whether they're gonna go to hell. They think they know that. They kid themselves. Right? The show. Right. We'll do a great show.
1: We'll smile, (laughs) we'll cry, big glistening tears that pour onto the stage, and we'll make their lives a little happier, huh? So, they won't have to face themselves. They Come can on. pretend to be somebody else. Be happy. Be joyous. Come on. You, maestro. Come on. There's a yes. Give me the downbeat. Okay. The downbeat. So, you wanna watch a movie, but you don't know which? Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So, sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, we're covering John Cassavetes' 1976 film, or I guess 78, depending on who you ask, uh, or or what cut you watched. Uh, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, starring Ben Gazzara. This one's going to be a Jared pick, so your hot streak continues with six out of the last eight.
0: Six out of the last eight, The Conqueror keeps inching his way back <laughs> to redemption. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation tonight. Yeah. It's it's a it's a, it's, it's a strange movie.
1: Well, just to set the score again here, uh, we're at 13 for me and 10 and a half for Jared. Uh, he just oh. broke into the double digits.
0: Since the separation started, that must be the closest it's been in recent months right like like other than like week four i feel like it hasn't been this close for a while
1: yeah yeah i had i held a a mighty lead there for a yeah. while but uh yeah you've you've crawled back yeah. in well i'll do my best to not overly bask in the sun i'm not because everything not, ends.
0: everything wanes
1: i'm not not blaming the rule change on the the board placement but <laughs> you know we'll we'll see well
0: hey the fact that we hit a number for the first time last week that That was not a a rule change tweak for that week exclusively. That's and true. I do plan on continuing a lefty throw this week because i did I did enjoy the result of just hitting a number never hit before.
1: no, that's a good point. and And, yeah, we should mention that too. This is one of the original board editions uh, from back in the day. Um, you know, I mean, i I think I can say back in the day now because I mean, it's been uh, six months at this point, basically, a little since while. we while doing these. so yeah, more than that, uh, actually, in terms of when we started recording them. So, yeah, we uh, we put this on the board a while ago, and and uh, it's the first time we've hit a, a first timer in a while or a first, first board edition in a while. Well, let me ask
0: you this. How many originals are left on the board? So we just hit The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, one of the OGs, like George just said. How many are left?
1: Left of the OGs, we've got Ex Machina, The Big Sleep, The Sixth Sense, Days of Heaven, Vertigo, The Straight Story, and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think that's it. We've still got seven left from the original board.
0: Seven left. So we've been doing this for quite some time, like you said, and there's still seven, and I guess eight if you had included The Killing of a Chinese Bookie this week's movie. That's pretty crazy that we've had so many repeats.
1: If you include Sling Blade, we've had 25 selections on the board.
0: Wow. A lot of repeats,
1: yeah. A lot of repeats. Uh, I mean, in terms of hitting ones that we we just put on the board, um, you know, we had a we had a run of that for the, like the last two weeks when we had Repo Man and Let the Right One In, which were both like only on the board for two weeks apiece.
0: That was so bizarre, hitting ones that just were <laughs> barely on the board for any amount of time, and then we still have these ones gathering dust. You know, that we been wanting to get to for a while.
1: Wild. Well, this week we're back to the originals: the killing of a Chinese bookie. I mentioned it a little bit in the intro there there are two versions of this movie. Um, so, you know, depending on which one you watched you uh, honestly having now watched both, you got a different experience in in both
0: very of them. different. Two versions. There's the original 1976 cut, runs about 2 hours and 17 minutes, currently available on HBO Max and Criterion if people want to kind of check these movies out. And then there was a shorter version that came out after, clocks in about an hour and 48 minutes, and that was released in 1978, and that is available on HBO Max, and you can rent it on Amazon Prime. But to Drew's point, what was so crazy about both of these versions is one obviously is shorter, but it's not just that they cut a bunch of stuff out. There's a lot of stuff added to it, too. And rearranged? And rearranged and tweaked around, it is a very different experience, I've found.
1: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And uh, I, we, we can get into which one we preferred. Uh, you know, I think let's first, though, talk about how did this get on the board? So, I mean, we we said that this was an original selection. What was your thought process when you put this on the board in the first place?
0: So, as people may know, I am obsessed with the movie Sorcerer, which Drew introduced me to, William Friedkin movie. It's amazing. And there's this great conversation with William Friedkin, the director of Drive. Nicholas
1: Winding Refn.
0: Refn. I can remember Refn, but I can never remember the earlier parts. But he interviews him. And at some point in the conversation, they talk about. William Friedkin's admiration of Refn for putting his own money into the movie like like he Refn invests some of his own capital into making these movies and Friedkin's kind of gushing about that a little bit towards the end of the interview and he mentions like a few other filmmakers that he knew in his time that did anything remotely similar He's like Cassavetes, Cassavetes would would dump his own money into it. And he made all these movies. And if they didn't work, he didn't have a house because he would do a mortgage. And he does all this stuff. And he he lists off some of the names of Cassavetes films. And he mentions some other ones, shadows and different things. But he threw out the killing of a Chinese bookie and me watching this interview. That's when I took the screenshot of like to talk about a powerful name. That's just a name that punched me in the face. The killing of a Chinese bookie.
1: It sticks with you.
0: It really does. It's a really kind of potent name. It conjured an image very different than what we end up getting in this film, which is, we'll get to in due time. But I just, that's how it got on the board. I, I took a screenshot of it. William Friedkin mentioned it in this interview. I had heard the name Cassavetes. I can't even source where I had heard it, but I knew it was a respected name. And I just thought that just based, again, on name strength alone, that just I'm intrigued and Mm -hmm. the fact that Freakin' recommended it. So that's how I came to take the screenshot, and that's how it got on the board.
1: Given that you are, I guess, new to Cassavetti's, I would imagine, given that you you haven't watched uh, any of those other ones before. So what was your experience watching The Killing of a Chinese Bookie? Complicated.
0: Okay. if I had to, if I had to put it in one word it was complicated So I like,
1: thought you were gonna fucking love this movie for some reason. I had a really
0: difficult time with it, but there were parts that I loved we've had we've had disagreements throughout the, the this show so far movies you loved and I hated and everything else but I think this might be, One of the highest barriers to entry of any movie we've covered, just in terms of technique and how information is conveyed and things like that. It's among the most challenging movies, in my opinion, that we've talked about so far. I would say even more so than The Exterminating Angel, which I think is the only thing that we've covered so far that even sniffs being so difficult to ingest. Impenetrable. yeah, it's very it's got really high walls. Of like it takes a lot of work to break into this movie's rhythm and it really kind of it really kept me at arm's length with a lot of the issues in terms of how it's shot, how it's how the sound is captured, different things make it really really difficult to take in. Hmm. So my first viewing was I should say this right out of the box, actually. First viewing was the 1976 two-hour 17-minute cut, Might the original well. cut. I started there, yeah. And Because generally, I always want to start with whatever the theatrical was. And the only other time we've covered on this show a movie that has a history of multiple cuts was Heaven's Gate, but you and I only watched the Criterion version, which is true to the running length of the original theatrical. Correct. So I I always like to start there and then I'll and then whenever there's a multiple cut situation, whether it's a Blade Runner or anything else, I want to see theatrical first and then see the changes.
1: I think it's interesting in the case of this movie because generally when I think of directors cuts, I think beefier. I think yes. there's missing pieces that they felt like needed to be back in there to make sense of the movie. I'm thinking of mm-hmm. like Kingdom of Heaven's director's cut is probably my favorite example of this where it's a movie that the the studio forced Ridley Scott to cut down to two hours and it had no business being a two hour movie. It just needed the room to breathe. Mm-hmm. You watch the the three hour director's cut of that movie and it's a goddamn masterpiece. And you're mm-hmm. like, what the fuck was the studio thinking? Like that's what I think of when I think of like a director's cut or like a refining thing. This was the opposite of that. Opposite. This is you're... pulling back, it's re- restructuring, like you said, and it's and it's adding scenes. To me, it <laughs> doesn't scenes. to me it doesn't work. Even though it's doing some of the things that I had a problem with in the in the longer cut. Yeah. But anyway, keep going yeah. with what you're saying.
0: So I started with the longer version. Watched it with my roommate and my roommate's brother Brian, Bridget and Brian, who are Brian was in town visiting. I I really knew nothing about it other than the name and that I put it on the board. Knew it was Cassavetti's, knew roughly the time it came out, it's mid-70s. And I was expecting Again, based on title, sort of like a hard-boiled detective-y sort of thing. I don't know. I, I, I think I was thinking of maybe Chinatown, the Polanski film. Maybe that was kicking around. I don't know what I was expecting. But I did not get what I was expecting at all. There was a lot of that pressure because, again, I'm watching it with other people. It was just really, really difficult. The movie is hard to follow, especially in that original 76 cut. I I'll just say this too right now. I strongly recommend subtitles in this movie. Yes, I had a really hard time following dialogue.
1: They're also talking very cryptically too, so it's yes. like it's it's hard to follow from a, a liter- just a technical level of capturing the audio on set. Mm-hmm. Like they capture it very quietly and with a lot of like hiss tapis. and buzz in the background. So much tape Point being it's hard to hear the, the shit that they're saying. But on top of that, the dialogue is this layered, like they're, they're not saying what they're saying. Like they, they kind of are holding things back. You, you have to parse everything out. And if you don't have subtitles on, it's next to impossible to do.
0: Oh yeah. And a lot of the characters are mumbling and some of them, are weaving in and out of different languages. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the, the mobster characters are speaking Italian and on first viewing, because I really don't enjoy subtitles in English films. I particularly hate that the words tend to appear before the, like the written text tends to appear before the words are said. And I feel like it kind of spoils the words before they come out of the actor's mouths. So I generally only use subtitles with its for when it's foreign language, mm. but I literally, so I watched it the first time without those subtitles and I got lost in the sauce. The movie is really, I'm just going to say, badly mixed. I can't tell how much of it is intentional. Like I've seen some movies where the chaos of everything going on in the room or the scenario, my go to example would be Altman's Nashville. Sure. It seems it's on Altman purpose. Altman does that
1: in all of his stuff. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to that because that's a John yeah. Cassavetes thing. But I want to stick okay. with just overall thoughts right yeah. now.
0: So I had a, a really hard time following what was happening. And then on top of that, a lot of the movie is shot in an incredibly non-traditional way and in a very claustrophobic way. Things are randomly cropped off. Things are not in the frame that as, as film viewers, we are, have become accustomed to seeing things being a little more fully developed visually. Yeah. Fully developed is even a, a sticky word. But you know what I mean? It's like no, things are no, no, no. randomly lofted up to the point where I was fuddling with the aspect ratios on my television. I was like, did I? am I zoomed in accidentally? Am I missing things in the grander picture? Yeah. So I had all these technical struggles as I was watching the movie movie runs its course it comes to an end i think like i think i think i hated it i think i hated wow. that experience and then i sat with it a bit longer I it's like no there was there was really good stuff in there there was a lot that i liked i really loved the performances i like a lot of the colors even though the movie is like super dark visually too and then i switched over to the second cut which maybe we just talk about cuts one at a time because I want you to talk about how you feel about the first cut, yeah, the seventy six longer cut. Let's, let's do, that. do that. So, so my first experience with the long one, difficult to engage with. There was interesting scenes and good stuff, but the technical issues really kept me at arm length on first viewing, and I really wrestled with that. How did you react to the longer cut first viewing?
1: I also had a complicated experience with. The seventy six cut. Um, I was pretty relieved, honestly, to hear that you had a, a you, that you kind of struggled with it because I I thought I was going to be again being the the naysayer on on one of these, um, and I and I hate that like I hate being a bummer about movies. <laughs> uh, it just it, it, you know it's not fun for me. But I I didn't I didn't hate it. I didn't think I hated it when I watched it the first time, but I definitely was like the style of Cassavetes is something that if you're not immediately gripped by what's on screen, it's really easy to drift away from. And I was struggling with that. You know, like I had to put my phone in the jar at a certain point because it was (laughs) it was too much of a it was too much of a distraction. it was too easy of a pull when when I was watching this. I wanna I wanna first say that this is my second Cassavetes movie. Um, I mentioned when you put this on the board, or when we selected it, I forget, but um, I mentioned that I own this on Criterion. My brother got me the John Cassavetes box set for Christmas last year, and I've only watched one of the other ones in the set so far, A Woman Under the Influence, uh, from 1974 with Gina Rowlands and Peter Falk. Uh, Gina Rowlands giving an in- insanely good incredible performance peter falk 2 is just out of control good in that movie and i and i really loved that movie we'll get into the stylistic stuff with Cassavetti's because it play it's it's all about what he's doing as a filmmaker like the the style of how the movie is shot and the things that you struggled with in this movie are directly corollary to what he's trying to do with his like whole ethos as a filmmaker the problem is, in this movie, it doesn't work nearly as well as it does for me in A Woman Under the Influence. The whole point of that style is he's trying to get you up in with these characters and, like, in the moment with them. He's all about performances and, like, trying to capture something once in a lifetime on film, like, in the moment. And his way of doing that is to, to always have a free-flowing camera. And the problem is that just doesn't work when you're dealing with these scenes that need uh establishing shots and need kind of like coverage to to uh show you what's going on like like you know these big round table discussion conversations where it's like i want to see the other people at this table i want to see all the shit going on and he just wants to sit with ben gazzara in a in a tight close-up and like that's that's Uh, interesting when you do it a couple of times but when it's the whole movie it's it's hard to get invested with everything else going on outside of that character and I think you know a gangster story you know crime underworld type thing like this you want all that that color to the world a little bit um I think I think we were both craving that a little bit and that's not to say that this movie needs to have that it's it's doing its own thing but I definitely had this a similar to re, reaction to what you did, where it was like, I just I don't know if I vibed with that. I don't know if I was in on it. I will say I really, really loved the movie for the first like twenty minutes or so. I loved like getting to know this character, seeing him going around with the girls, and um, I love pretty much everything leading up to. When he actually does the killing, I think it's a. I think it's doing interesting stuff for like through most of that, and then the back half is just like get on with it, man. Like let's go. <laughs> like I don't know. Um, that was kind of my general reaction to the seventy six version.
0: Gotta say, fascinating for the most part. I, I I disagree in terms of the segments that I liked versus the ones that you like. The fallout after the killing. Is what I found the most fascinating in a way was the ramp up to the arm twist and the fallout afterwards and and, and Ben Gazzara's tailspin after that. That's when I was like really like, oh, I, I think I like this now. But a lot of the lead up to it, I was really lost in a lot of the style that I really found difficult to take in. And mm. and made it frustratingly difficult to follow what was happening that that was the thing that in the early part of the movie I really grappled with again first viewing I'm just trying to get my bearings who is this guy why is he paying money is he is he buying something whatever and then I'm just I don't know I can't hear what's happening
1: something about the disorienting nature of the the opening of it I really was vibing with I think it's bloated for sure like and what we'll get to well let's let's talk about the 78 version really yeah quick. let's talk to the other what, cut yeah so I, I half watched it i was mostly just kind of i was doing research and stuff in the background but i wanted to at least have a frame of reference cuz i unfortunately watched the 78 version yesterday for the first time and then i just like ran out of time to finish the, the 76 one but i at least got a good vibe for kind of what they were changing about it and i and i hated it <laughs> oh, I, I thought it made it so much worse
0: I preferred it so much more. Interesting. Okay, tell me I, why. I really like the 78. Among the other issues I had, in the 76 version, a lot of my problems with things like the framing and the audio that really kept me away had been smoothed out in the 78, or those mm. scenes were just chopped out. And what is so cool about this is when I saw the runtime differences before I dove into part 2 I was under the impression of oh they just he just hacked it down he did I've heard which is Paul what Thomas I
1: wanted from the 78 version that's all I was looking for
0: yeah and and I thought like oh he just he 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 trimmed it up he lost 30 minutes and he made a tighter movie not only does he do that he does make a really tight movie and one would argue almost a little rigid it moves really fast but he also adds these scenes which is crazy to me that he lost all this time but then added these two key scenes specifically that I am in love with. So again, I've I've mentioned my problems with the movie. I haven't really gone into deeply the stuff that I really really liked. And there's a lot that I grew to do. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think viewings. overall
1: I really liked this movie. I don't love it, but yeah.
0: Yeah, I just want to give people out there a fair warning. It's not an easy movie to like, but it's it is a rewarding watch in some weird way, I think. It's just it's a challenging summit type of movie to get into. But in any in any event, The two scenes specifically in the 78 shorter version that I really vibed with is one is after Ben Gazzara loses all that money at the poker table and he's getting ready to go discuss his repayment options with the mobsters pretty early on in the film. There's a scene included in the 78 again shorter version of like this doctor and his wife being in the same situation before Ben Gazzara goes in. To deal with his debt. And it's a great establishing sequence of how serious these mobsters are and other people in a similar situation. And it's just a, a, a scene that I loved. And I was like, oh shit, why wasn't this in the original movie? But then, even more impactful than that, the scene where they pull Ben Gazzara's character to the diner table. And they really first start to throw his debt in his face mm-hmm. and aggressively twist his arm to try to set up this hit that they want him to do to repay the debt. And in the shorter version, that scene is so much longer and I think so much better. That I agree with. And it really establishes like, first of all, we find out that Ben Gazzara's character, we'll just say his name to Cosmo, Cosmo was was a Korean War veteran. He has all this history. Uh, they get into the situation of he only wants to eliminate like $10,000 worth of his debt. And they come up with this like kind of middle ground solution of like, well, maybe you just lure this guy to your club and we'll take care of the rest is the implication. And like, then we'll knock 10 grand off of the 24K that you owe or whatever it is. And that... I just, that sequence was to me so much better explained. And then also threw in these character wrinkles that really made the whole thing flourish to me more. So I'll just quickly say while we're talking about this, Timothy Carey is the actor who plays Flo, the guy who is like the hitman who ends up leaving at the end of the film and doesn't kill him and, and bails on that whole assassination attempt. In this shorter version of the diner arm twist sequence, he's shown occasionally being like, well, just let him pay. Just let him pay the money and move on. It seems like he's trying to dismiss this hit idea. And that makes so much more sense to where his character ends up going, that he doesn't want to be involved in this sort of more nefarious bent. Like he views it a little more black and white of just like, just let this guy pay his debt if he doesn't want to assassinate this person. And so a lot of those things added up to me for it to be the stronger cut. And I really flowed with it a lot more, even though I do think it is a little jerky. Um, But that was my vibe on the second cut is if I was going to suggest someone to watch this for the first time, I would recommend the second cut first. What was your impression of the second cut after seeing the first cut?
1: Yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I definitely didn't watch this one with nearly as attentive an eye uh, on the second watch. So you know, or on the first watch of the second cut. Um, so I, I, I trust your opinion more than mine. I think my problems with it were more structure. I, I liked the way that the longer cut flows in the early parts of the movie. I love that the 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 longer cut starts with that uh, deal at the restaurant, you know, the outdoor patio scene. I love that little deal. And that just put me in, in a really cool vibe. I felt like for, for how the movie was starting. I don't like that. They start in the club, even though, I mean, I think it makes maybe more sense uh, structurally, but I, I don't know. I just, I, I like, you know, him being established right out of the gates as somebody who, Clearly has issues that he needs to pay off debts for. You know, yeah. I don't think that it's nearly as impactful to not start with that. So starting there, I think the vibes that I enjoyed, that put me into a good headspace going into the movie, were kind of gone on that that cut. I don't know what it is. It's no, a little harder to explain.
0: It. It's it's less breathy. It dives right in and it zips around.
1: You know, you mentioned the the scene that was added at the, the club after he loses the money in the poker game. Mm-hmm. And to me, that scene, I don't need that. I immediately get that this guy's in trouble when he's in that room with all those those guys who are clearly presented as gangster types. You know, um, I think part of what I really like about Cassavetes is he doesn't explain things. He lets you just kind of live in the world with these characters. And again, it works way, way better in A Woman Under the Influence. But I think in this movie, um, I, don't, I don't need it to be quite as, as literal maybe in that scene, but I don't know. That's my, my read on it anyway.
0: Well, it's interesting because we, with the, with the trajectory we took to getting to the shorter version, we have the, not even baggage, but we just have the experience of the longer version in our back pocket. Yeah. So we know about the mobster influence, but one thing that's interesting is in that 78 version, they really cut down a lot of that intro of the mob component. So in the shorter version, there is no intro with Mort arriving to Cosmo's club and talking True. about how much no he part. likes it and mentioning yeah. all this stuff. So they kind of need a scene to reestablish what types of people these guys are, because we haven't seen any of them before in this edit of the movie. And I think that that, that does a really good job in the shorter version of being like, of quickly throwing you into the situation. But it's just, it's so bizarre. I've never seen two edits so drastically different. I really kind of like, it's fascinating because you're so right. Like, director's cuts are normally longer. This is chopped down deeply, but then also this scene's added and it's very different. It's shocking. And I think for me, the perfect cut of this movie like lives in between the two. Like I, I want someone to do a third stab at like blending these movies together and making the overall runtime in between the two some at some point. But taking these scenes and adding these ones like I don't know. It's just so weird because I found I found the first one. a little too meandery and a little too indulgent on the club scenes and, uh, and really technically difficult. And then I did prefer and really enjoyed the second one, but I will still say I found it to be a little bit too aggressive and a little bit too quick. I wish they'd split the difference between the two.
1: No, I'm with you. I I think, I think there's like a hour 52 hour movie in here. That's perfect. Um, or not perfect, but, but a really freaking great tight movie. Because I think, in my opinion, the problem is not the arranging of things. It's it's really just the breathiness of the whole thing. Like just cons- like like compress it down a little bit, and it's a great movie. I, I I really love all the the stuff of him like breaking into the the guy's house and like shooting. Yeah, him. That's, I I, that's I think all awesome. that stuff really works. I think all the scenes of him getting you know the pressure put on him to do the job and stuff like I think all of that really is 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 great stuff it just gets muddled when you throw in literally like a 10 minute straight sequence of just watching like the act from from this guy's show which is terrible it's 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 like objectively not interesting (laughs) and like I don't have I, I, I don't care about watching what what's the the character the like that you know the host of the show the old oh, guy
0: Mr <sighs> Mr Sophistication
1: yeah well yeah i mean all the stuff with Mr Sophistication and and the dancers like seriously you could probably cut 15 minutes out of the movie just by cutting those scenes and they don't yeah. add anything to the I, I mean look i this maybe takes us into the conversation about John Cassavetes because i think like those scenes are there because they're illustrating what he's trying to say about this movie, with this movie rather. He wants to depict what his experience working in filmmaking has been basically with this movie. Like I Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of people talk about like that this movie is autobiographical in the sense of it's John Cassavetes was always a guy who put his own neck on the line for his art. Mm and his art was was always the goal like that nothing else mattered it was like that that was it and with cosmo he's using that as as a a uh, way of of expressing that in that cosmo is obsessed with this stupid little thing that he does he loves this this show he loves uh, putting on this act and designing it because it's his and it's it's like it doesn't matter that it's shit. It's his, and like mm-hmm. that's what he's trying to do with it. But like, I don't need twenty goddamn minutes of shit, yeah, to get that point.
0: <laughs> I, I I I I reacted to that in the exact same way. Yeah, it's 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 so bloated. But again, to your point, I get what he's trying to do. But it is just it makes the movies really hard to watch because you just get bogged down in these big scenes that are intentionally bad. I don't mean they're shot. Po- I just mean in terms of how they're portraying the show is it's clearly like the lamest strip tease show in the universe. But to spend so much time dwelling on it really takes the wind out of the sails of the film and it really so it's a it's a dangerous game he's playing in a lot of ways of like trying to bring you into cosmos life and show this world that he has created that he cares so much about but it's also dull and it's dusty and it's lacking inspiration so we are forced to spend time in this space for like more time than we would want.
1: Well, and the, the parts of that that are valuable are when you're getting Cosmo's reaction to his own stuff. Like that's when it's cool when it's in the background and, and you're getting Cosmo in those scenes, that's when it works because it's, that's the point of it. You're, you're conveying it that way. We don't need to just watch the show then on top of that. But anyway, that's, I mean, I feel like that's a little bit nitpicky, but the point we're trying to make is like, you cut that stuff out, you cut out some of the bloat of just, you know, the back half of, you know, stretching out all these threads in my opinion, or in the front half, depending on who you talk to on this show, I guess. I think if you cut down some of that, you have, you have a really tight, awesome little movie here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, like I do want those certain scenes expanded. The diner table or whatever, sure make, movie, sure. make them in that other version, but again, yeah, you're right. There's, there's an um, there's an easy to like movie in between these two versions, but I didn't find either one easy to like. Which is not to say it's bad, but it's tough. It's, yeah, it's a rough, it's a rough one.
1: Well, let's talk about John Cassavetes. Like I said, I mean, Cassavetes is a guy who came up as an actor, found his way into filmmaking alongside that. He's just you know kind of a consummate artist. He Got initial acclaim as an actor. He was nominated for an Oscar for uh, The Dirty Dozen in 1968. That same year, he was also in Rosemary's Baby, which is an all-timer horror movie. He is great in that as well. Um, But yeah, from there, he was able to do what he really wanted to do, which was make his movies. And in a lot of ways, John Cassavetes is who we have to thank for the entire independent film movement. You can really think of him as like the guy who inspired and and, and created, uh, you know, the room for people like Steven Soderbergh and Quentin Tarantino and Richard Linklater, you know, the Coen brothers, Sam Raimi, people like that. Like the space that John Cassavetes carved out in filmmaking um, is the same space that those people occupied early in their careers. I don't know. I find it really interesting to think about because, I mean, this guy... Like you said earlier, like he put his neck on the line by like financing these things himself. And it's all about achieving something higher than just, you know, formulaic Hollywood production stuff.
0: I think it's about a lack of interference as well.
1: Lack of interference. Yeah.
0: Like when you're, when you're, when you're truly independent, when no one else is financing up your operation, you're not answering to anybody. You can do whatever you want and let the movie live and die on its own merits and not have someone advising you who is paying for the whole thing and then you you have this tension of how much do you listen to well them. I
1: think he also believed that your art is not homogenized that way by doing it so you yeah. know you can make movies about real life and not like this fictionalized version of life he felt like yeah. you know he could explore like more taboo subjects and and give the real uh, emotions of things uh, that way which I I, yeah. I I totally see what he's getting Well, at.
0: really cool, too, speaking of the different cuts, like, I saw in an interview on the special features of the DVD I had that, like, nobody encouraged him or pressured him, obviously, because, again, he is truly, like, this is his own thing. There's no one breathing down his neck. Yeah. Like, it he just wanted to recut it. He was kind of unhappy. He felt like the 76 version was a little rushed. Like, a lot of these times, like, the other example on this podcast as mentioned was heaven's gate like that was studio pressure being like this movie is failing we have to get a shorter version out there in theaters or so or the documentaries i saw made it seem that way this movie is nothing like that it's literally like a year or so later he was like ah i i i want to do it differently and he just on his own accord decided to go back into the editing bay mm-hmm. and drastically alter the film it's pre- it's pretty cool.
1: No it is. It, it it I appreciate that he is not precious about his art in that way. Yeah. Um I think that's really neat. But yeah, I I you know, just talking about his style, I think as I said before, I think it works a lot better in a woman under, under the influence and I'm excited to watch the I've rest of this filmography that. now yeah, yeah. um to see whether more falls into the the woman under the influence camp or more in the killing of a chinese bookie camp because yeah i mean i as much as i appreciated a lot about this movie it's not a movie that i really have interest in going back to but a woman under the influence uses this style of like these close ups and this like really intimate you know uh, lens that he's using it works so much better there because it's about a family and and like a woman like having a breakdown as she's trying to like raise her kids and and be a good wife and and you know like it's 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 the filmmaking style is adding something to that soup in a way that i don't feel like it necessarily was in this movie.
0: Mm. As mentioned this was not an easy movie to take in but am it it intrigued me. It intrigued me to see what else he's got going on, especially if there's something else that he's made that you've seen that you really responded to. Like I kind of want to see the different ways his somewhat chaotic and very loose style captures things. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of modern day filmmakers, too, that shoot in a very loose and improvisational style. And I really like it. So I feel like they probably it seems like anyway they owe a big debt to Cassavetes. But again, so I do like the style, but for me in this story it went a little too far yeah. a lot of times and and pushed me into pulling me out of the film to the point I was like why is that, why am I looking at someone's legs or their waist for two minutes and like i can't see what's going on like it got it really got in its own way a lot of times
1: yeah no i tend to agree with you just it it doesn't really work and you know as much as i love the the sequence of him breaking into the guy's house and, and killing him even in that scene i was watching it being like man i'd really love an establishing shot here i'd love to see what this room looks like i'd love to see like where people are positioned you know um, and he's lingering on all these close ups to to like show you what's going on in in the character's heads and like that's cool too, but like I just don't I, I don't get why we can't have like one shot of just to give me give me the spatial geography that I'm dealing with here.
0: The portions of a style I might be gelling with would be something like that because I didn't notice that or care where I was like, oh yeah, he's in the house now. I didn't feel I needed the establishing shots. I did think it was a great example on how stripping away music can be a huge strength. I mean, I think that scene is really tense and I, despite the name of the film, I had significant doubts on whether or not he was going to pull the trigger Mm -hmm. and that, that whole sequence with him feeding the hamburgers to the dogs and getting in and snooping around. And it just really was a very tense, great sequence yeah. And I, I, th- I found that that's when a, the movie really picked it up for me. And it was just like, okay, this is crazy. And when it shows his intelligence. I and mean, last week we talked about let the right one in and how this person who is you know, killing people on behalf of the vampire is so stupid. Like here we see an example of someone who's actually kind of smart trying to get away with a murder when he's hopping the bus and taking the different taxis and hopping out at different spots. It's like, oh, this guy is he's he's crafty, but he's just been put in this position that he wants nothing to do with. So, I, I mean, there was a really again, I want to hammer this home. There's a lot of really good shit in this movie, but it it is not all easy to drink down.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to get back to some of the good shit because I, I, I've, yeah. I've got a couple of things I want to talk about. But real quick, before we move off of John Cassavetes, um, the same year that this movie came out, he had a movie that he starred in come out uh, called Mikey and Nikki. Have you ever heard of it?
0: I've, I've heard you mention it before.
1: And I'll tell you why you've heard me mention it, because it's written and directed by Elaine May.
0: Oh, okay writing it down or
1: Elaine May. But uh, yeah, it's her only serious uh, like dramatic movie and it's uh, starring him and Peter Falk, who I previously mentioned as one of the co-stars of uh, a woman under the influence and a frequent Cassavetes collaborator.
0: Well, despite my few hesitations with this film, I would be still very intrigued to see Cassavetes in front of the camera. Mm. Cause I know that's kind of where he, as you mentioned, he made his, his start in a lot mm. of ways. So, I'd love to see him acting. And who doesn't like Elaine May movies? Like, they're the best. And to see, because it's funny, too. A lot of the Elaine May comedies that I've seen have very dark and serious tones in them. You know, Heartbreak Kid has moments that get really dark. Yeah. A New Leaf has a very dark interpretation that it could have gone in and still has that underbelly in. My, yeah. So I'd be very curious to see, like, her just doing—I'm not even really trying to do a straight-up comedy here. I'm going to embrace the dark. That would be kind of crazy to see.
1: There's also some crazy stories with that movie, like uh, the fact that Elaine May uh, once locked herself uh, in the editing room uh, with a gun to protect the edit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So there's, gra- there's a great backstory as well. This Stuff is, like this that. Is yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. But anyway, no, great movie. And and yeah, Cassavetes is, is great in front of the camera, too. Um, I really, I, I love Rosemary's Baby. I'm a huge fan of that movie. Um, and he's great in it as well. But yeah, let's move on. Um, you know, speaking about great things in this movie, I think one of the strongest things about this movie is Ben Gazzara's performance. Dude. How did you feel about it?
0: I loved it.
1: And I think that kind of ties it. into the Cassavetti style, man. He loves that's, to just showcase actors.
0: That's if I was pitching this to a civilian, I would say. It's a difficult watch, but the performances are incredible, especially Ben Gazzara. I think he needs to be brought into the kennel. Ooh, big. I might have a new movie actor love. That's awesome. I, loved this performance so deeply, especially on repeat viewings and really getting used to the roughness of the film and how challenging it is. I really got to focus on just the performance itself and not be so distracted by the stuff I didn't like. And I was really watching it. It's like, this is a great performance.
1: He's so good.
0: Let me ask you this, because I only have one movie I can think of that I've seen him in. How familiar with are you with Ben Gazzara outside of this film and before you came to this?
1: I think my story is going to be pretty common among Probably most people, which is uh, <laughs> yeah. my my intro to him was in The Big Lebowski as Jack Tree. Bingo! Trier. Same here. Yep. That's the easy one. But I also am a huge fan of Roadhouse, and he's awesome in Roadhouse.
0: Dude, I saw Roadhouse once a few years ago, maybe eight, and... I have no memory of him in that movie. He's the villain. Gotta re- he's the main villain. I got to revisit it because I, I really don't remember him at all. Oh, man. Yeah, he's he's great. Uh,
1: but yeah, no, that's my only background with Ben Gazzara before this. But he's also been in a, a few other Cassavetes films. He was a frequent collaborator of his. Mm. Um, he was in uh, Husbands with with Cassavetes in front of the film, as in front of the camera as well. Um, and he was also in... Opening Night, which is another one that's in my box set that I'm really excited to watch.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with this guy. Rest in peace. He passed away several years ago, but it just, in, in terms of the things I love about acting his look, his voice, his, his expressive eyes, the strength of the performance, so much of the character is unsaid. It's just astounding. I really, really want to see more of his work. I found him to be intoxicating. And in this really cool, like, flimsy way. At some point, we're going to talk about the ripple effects of this movie. But I just wanted to say now, I think this performance, to me, led to a lot of Burt Reynolds' performance in Boogie Nights. Where we have this kind of charismatic character who deals in a sort of lurid subject matter but they're constantly trying to convince themselves of themselves. And they're like, they don't really buy who they are. And they're constantly trying to present themselves a certain way, but they they're, they're delusional about how they view themselves. And they're trying to convince themselves of it.
1: It's really fucking interesting to me that the big Lebowski and boogie nights came out the same year. And when you think about it, Burt Reynolds and Ben Gazzara are playing very freaking similar characters. Yeah. Um, That's wild, man. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, I mean like it's, it's really interesting. I mean you like the, you're exactly right. The exact same energy that Reynolds is bringing to that performance in Boogie Nights is what Ben Gazzara is doing in this movie. It's it's someone who's really proud in their smutty, stupid art, you know, Uh, I shouldn't say stupid. It's not even stupid. It's just, they're, they're like, they're, like little quirky art form that they love, like they're so passionate about. Their world
0: they've created. Yeah. They're fiercely protective and they're very
1: proud of it. There's something really endearing and and cool about that. I don't know. I I love characters like this.
0: Well, think of how seriously Burt Reynolds, like takes the whole filmmaking process in Boogie Nights and he views himself as a true director and a true artist. And who's to say he's not, but we have these funny little jabs that really show kind of, the ego being overly inflated. And I see so much of that in this Ben Gazzara character or vice versa, whichever way I should say it for which one came first. But yeah, like he has this level of charisma that it's easy to see why they're successful and why they're relatively successful at what they're doing. But it's not so much that we, the audience, can't see through it. So we get these great monologues of Ben Gazzara, especially at the end of the movie, after he's been shot and he's back in the dressing room trying to give the girls and everyone and Mr. Sophistication this pep talk, this like nonsense talk of like people who kid themselves and like, let's go out there and give them a show. It's it's a really amazing scene. And in his eyes, there's just something that he's not buying what he's saying at all. And it's just so sad and haunting and amazing and it's delivered perfectly Mm. it's it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie and it's really high on the list of things i liked about it for sure
1: oh yeah no but i mean like what you're saying like you get those moments where you know you see the like all this pain and anger and stuff. But then there's also these like little warm moments where he's happy, you know, like right after he pays off his debt and he gets to pick up the girls and give them the, you know, the corsets and the, or what, not corsets, what corsages? Corsage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. 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 Corsages. And, you know, they, uh, go out to the poker night and, you know, he's, he's enjoying like doing all that. And then it immediately flips, and he's you know in dark mode. It's like he's he's doing all of it, and it's man, it's just such a fucking layered performance. I love watching him think, you know, in scenes. Mm -hmm. It's, um, yeah, it's wonderful. It's a it's one of my favorite performances we've covered on the show so far, and I am fully on board with introducing him to the kennel.
0: Yeah, Uh, dude, he's getting. We got. I got to see some more performances.
1: I mean, Big Dog is still still the Big Dog is still Big Dog,
0: but he's he's. If he strings a couple in a row, like whenever we get to him next, Jet, I completely agree with you. This is going to be in the running for my favorite performances of the year or that we've covered so far. And it's shocking to me that it's in a movie that I had such mixed emotions about. But the performance was so impactful to me. It really just, it that element of the movie just, just, blew my hair back i i i love his performance and i will just say too everyone's performance in this movie from the traditional actors to the non-actors is fucking fantastic
1: i i think for the most part yeah i mean that look like this movie is populated with a lot of non-actors and it it shows at times um but you know, they, I, I particularly love Seymour Castle in this movie. I think he's, he's got great yes. presence. When they deliver the news more, to He plays more, right? The, the yeah, gangster more, with the mustache. Yeah. Yep. When they deliver the news to him that Cosmo has actually killed this guy or, or that yeah. this guy is dead and he infers that Cosmo had killed him, um, that reaction is just fantastic. He, he crushes that whole scene because, he. you know, you're realizing that he's like, oh, shit, I didn't think he'd actually pull that off. Hmm.
0: Yeah, and then he and then he goes and get, delivers that news that like, oh, you're gonna have to go. He says to Flow, the other guy, the guy that I really like to, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of performances. It's like now you gotta go kill him, and now that's when we get introduced to the double cross thing. But that you're right; that performance is great, and particularly, even though I prefer the shorter cut, he really shines in the longer cut.
1: That's because that's part of why I like the longer cut.
0: That's that's totally fair. Like he his character is given a lot more room to operate him in and we're introduced to him in a sort of innocuous way where he, I I mean, I fell for it when he first walks up and talks about how much he loves this joint and he's got this place. I didn't know they were baiting the hook. And so, so it's just great to see that character give a little bit more room to breathe. And he's even in the shorter version. He's awesome in every scene.
1: Yeah. Um, And you mentioned, You know, the character Flo, who is played by Timothy Carey, he is a fucking weird-ass actor, man.
0: Dude, he's so strange. He had these uh, amazing word choices and—or ways—not word choices, but the way he would express words. Remember when they're talking about picking up the hamburgers? And he's just like, you're going to need to get some beef. And he, like, really hits the word beef in a strange way and, like, sits on it for a minute. Like, yeah, and he had so many things— like that that i'm like i think i really like this this guy is just talking so fucking weird
1: yeah no i i I really dug timothy Carey in this i i like all the weird little things he's throwing into the mix it's fun you know i think outside of those three guys though that's when you start to get into amateur territory for the most part um i you know that's were there any other standouts for you
0: i mean i wouldn't say any other standouts but i will say that Every person that came on screen for me never struck a false note. Like even looking at something like Mister Mister Sophistication, like we have, we both had our issues on the level of which those club scenes are indulged in in the longer version. I, I definitely think that's it's too much, but the performance itself is really good. I find it I buy it in the dressing room and in the green room and I buy it on the stage. Like it it just seems really natural.
1: It is natural,
0: yeah. And this guy's not even an actor. He was just a writer that that Cassavetes knew. And then I I, I really enjoyed all of the actors who played the various kind of girls of the strip club. Mm-hmm. There's Alice Friedland who plays like Sherry, the blonde kind of buxomier one for lack of a better term.
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's
0: uh, Azizi Johari. What who plays year her. is it? <laughs> How are you going to describe these girls, man? I don't know. You
1: could have gone with bro- like busty, but you went with buxom. I like buxomy, man.
0: That's a good word. Uh, the actor who plays Rachel is fantastic. Azizi Johari, I think is is her name. She is uh, so stunningly beautiful, but such a great actor. And she like I'm just buying all of these people no, like you, again I, mean, I
1: that's totally fair that's it's totally such
0: fair. a it, it it's one of the things that really stokes my flames t- to explore Cassavetes more is I had so many issues with the film but not a single false note in performances was hit for me every no matter how small a character when they were on screen I bought it so clearly this director has got good connection just based on this one viewing alone with his with his actors, so I'm excited to see more of his work, even just for that, because yeah. I bought every single face that came across the screen.:
1: Yeah, um I felt that way about a woman under the influence. I felt it less in this, but totally, yeah, i I, I get what you're saying. I agree for the most part. Um, anything else we want to wrap up on before we we move off of uh the killing of a Chinese bookie?
0: I had one last thing I wanted to mention, too. And it's, it's somewhat related to Cassavetti's style. And one of, it was one of my favorite scenes with Cosmo. It's after he's been shot. And he gets tended to by that mother character who's like Rachel's mom. And he comes back and is talking to her about his, his upbringing. And she doesn't really care. And he's like, well, it matters to me. And she's like, I don't care. And all this. It's a great scene. That entire thing was improvised. And it's incredible. So I saw an interview with Ben talking about how people are mistaken about because of the way Cassavetes shoots his scenes, they assume so much is improvised. But a lot of it isn't. But he was saying that that is actually an example of a scene where there was nothing on the page. And it was literally like they just came into the room. And it's that scene, if you remember, where at some point... No, I, like I, take, know, I know the scene. Yeah, yeah. He takes that sip of that coffee... And like spits it out and throws it down. And he's been, again, shot. He's spinning out. Like It's just an amazing scene. And when I found out that was improvised, I was shocked and loved it. Nice. So I think this movie might sneakily have a really big influence on a lot of things that we like. I'll be curious to hear if you agree with any of these things or if you have others as well. I mentioned Burt Reynolds in Boogie Nights. I do think that was a big one. One of them is Scorsese. So I will say I picked up on these just watching the movie. And then with some research, I found out that they really did have a close working relationship. Scorsese really viewed Cassavetes as a mentor. Cassavetes had Scorsese on as, I think, an assistant audio person and like allowed him allowed Scorsese to crash in one of the sets, which was like an apartment. So really kind of helped him on his journey up as far as I could tell. But the way things look in the club really remind me of Goodfellas. The blues and the reds and the way this kind of seediness kind of comes across and the color palette specifically. I feel like Scorsese might have been doing a direct shout out to this film specifically.
1: Oh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I think that like... I don't know if that, that lighting pattern is necessarily unique to Nick Cassavetes, but, or, or to John Cassavetes, but maybe. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's possible.
0: And the other was another Scorsese one. The scenes in Raging Bull where Robert De Niro has finished his boxing career and he's trying to be some sort of stand-up comedian, and especially like the club he creates down in Florida, really reminded me of this sort of place. Like Mm. we see scenes of him just bombing on stage and not doing well. And we just see this nonsense kind of club that he's made. That's just Just completely
1: indulgent.
0: Yeah. It's indulgent. It's seedy. It's just girls running around and cheesy jokes. I, I got a lot of that there too. And then the biggest one is Mr. Sophistication South Park, the guy who sings the imagination song.
1: Is that his name?
0: He, Do you remember that Isn't episode he just in something? the mayor? The way they take that boat to Imagination yeah, Land? Yeah, no,
1: I know yeah. exactly
0: the scene. He's wearing a top hat. He's got like a crazy oh, mustache. Oh, the look. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah, yeah, singing yeah, yeah. the song about imagination, which Mr. Sof- Mr. Sophistication does oh, in this wow. movie. Oh, I did not. Where he's like, Imagination, we're going to go to a place where... And so it's literally, I think, a direct...
1: I think I was so this. checked out in some of those scenes <laughs> that I completely missed that. That's fucking yeah. awesome.
0: I think that South Park is doing a direct shout-out to this movie with that character's Oh, it has to be. Yeah, that's yeah, 100%. Because um, no he's singing question. imagination, which is what this character does. And
1: he looks exactly like him. Looks exactly
0: like him. So, yeah, yeah that was, so that's so again, I th- and I'm sure there are a ton that I've never noticed or haven't seen yet, but I think this movie... Despite it, which we haven't really talked about yet, bombing at the box office, being pulled after like six weeks, and being rejected by audiences, which I understand because it's a really difficult flick, I think it still re- had a really big impact culturally. No, and
1: yeah.
0: I think it's—I think it was kind of a, quite the little "quote unquote." Meteor failure, whatever we want to call it, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, like, this is not the the end-all be-all of, like, what we should canonize as the great films of all time, but, you know, that book, and uh, Thousand and One Movies to Watch Before You Die? I mean, this made the cut. Like, it's it's really? a movie that, like, you know, is considered, like, a classic. We can quibble with it. Um, I think it is interesting, at the very least. I'm glad I watched it. But certainly, like, I, I now am seeing... Where I might not connect with Cassavetes versus A Woman Under the Influence, where I totally did.
0: I would say like 60% of the movie I really liked, and those parts I really loved, and the other 40% felt like a slog, even though it was intentional and it brought me to the emotional place it was probably intended to, it still made it uh, really challenging for me.
1: Most definitely. Well, I think we can wrap up there on the killing of a Chinese bookie. I think we're both pretty mixed on it. Um, Definitely not for the faint of heart, but uh, if you got this far in the pod and you're interested in it, we'd be uh, interested to hear your thoughts, I would imagine.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: We're closing the book on The Killing of a Chinese Bookie.
0: I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's my week, right?
1: That is correct, sir. Uh, What do you got for us this week?
0: So this is a movie I've never seen, and we don't have anything like it on the board have you seen the movie waking life
1: no i have not but i do uh, know it and i'm a big fan of richard linklater
0: so i also am a massive linklater fan and this is one that my sister mentioned to me and i grew up seeing it on vhs in the house in terms of like the box itself i never really saw it and i've always been curious about it Abby mentioned it to me kind of recently, and I was like, let's get that on the board. We don't have an animated No, I think
1: that's a great choice. It's available to rent uh, on all the major services. It looks like it might even be on uh, Cinemax right now. So uh, if you've got Cinemax streaming for some reason, I don't know why you would have that, but it's it's there. (laughs) Well, anyway, yeah, no, Waking Life, I think that's a great choice. I'd love to talk about Richard Link later. And uh, yeah, Waking Life is going on in number 18 slot uh, in place of The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. So let's run through the board as it sits currently. We've got number one you can count on me number two ex machina number three the right stuff number four the big sleep number five operation condor number six the sixth sense number seven amadeus number eight the fifth element number nine days of heaven number ten big daddy number eleven vertigo number twelve the straight story number thirteen thunderbolt and lightfoot number fourteen the king of comedy number fifteen the freds of eddie coyle number sixteen bottle rocket number seventeen the blair witch project number eighteen newly added waking life number nineteen on Her Majesty's Secret Service and at number 20, Kung Fu Hustle.
0: Nice. All right, let's do it. I'm going to chuck this thing. All right, let's do it.
1: We have a number
0: and I don't remember how many times we've hit it.
1: Is it more than once?
0: I don't know. The number is 19
1: we have not hit it but you got your wish last week I'm getting my wish this week it's on her majesty's secret yeah! service we're talking okay. James Bond we're talking George Lazenby doing his only movie as James Bond we're talking Bond man I'm excited
0: dude left hand might work in terms of accessing the original numbers I this is know. the Something, second something's original in the air in a row.
1: with these two throws man
0: honor majesty's secret service dude next
1: week no i love this uh we're going from independent art house cinema to uh big budget fucking paramount
0: (laughs) (laughs) bureaucracy at its finest
1: yeah well it's technically mgm but yes i get what you're saying (laughs) hey where would
0: we be without bureaucracy
1: where would you we peek I don't you, know. I don't know. You need a little I, those bit. Those are of questions it. for another podcast, Jared.
0: <laughs> Next week, we'll talk about bureaucracy <laughs> and its role in society. Oh, yeah
1: all right well next week we'll be doing on her majesty's secret service that was our episode on the killing of a chinese bookie thank you so much for listening please remember to rate review and give us a follow on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you like to listen if you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com follow us on instagram at Night. artwork for the show is created by veronica roman and all of our music is by eric williams
0: play us out there eric sorry mark Later.